Hear the word of the Lord from the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, reading from chapter 27, verses 57 to 66. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone over the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. As you might uh, well expect, uh, our study of uh, the cross brings us to reality that uh, people respond to the cross in different ways. The responses this morning are two polar opposites. Uh, On the one hand, there's belief and discipleship. On the other hand, there is suppressing the truth and denial. It's important to study the different responses to the cross. Uh, Sometimes in life, uh, with you and me, there are processes that engage us and shove us to one side or the other. Uh, This morning, we will look at those two sides, and I trust engage the process, because the cross, indeed, is shoving people into two different camps, and those two camps are before us this morning. The first half, uh, the cross will make disciples and then harden unbelievers as they suppress the truth of the coming resurrection. Let's begin first with the who, the who of the cross. The Jews uh, and their concern for ritual ask Pilate to hasten the death by breaking uh, the legs of the insurrectionists, and they numbered Jesus among them. Uh, And they do that, again, out of ritual. Uh, Book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, and the 31st verse, instructs them in their request, uh, because you were not to leave a corpse hanging uh, overnight, it would uh, curse the land. Uh, defile the land, and so again, that is why they go to Pilate. Uh, Men would oftentimes uh, uh, engage a rather lengthy process of dying upon a cross, 
Uh, and they wanted to hasten it so the land would not be cursed. The soldiers, of course, uh, comply with uh, Pilate. But coming to Jesus, they uh, find that he was already dead, John 19, 33. And so they did not have to break his bones to hasten his death. Uh, it is a parallel uh, to the great event of the Passover feast and the Passover lamb. Uh, because in the Old Testament, the bones of the Passover lamb were not to be broken. Again, uh, we know this from the book of Exodus, the 12th chapter, the 46th verse. It's to be eaten with a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. Again, instructions uh, uh, regarding uh, the Passover lamb. So that John is drawing attention to the correspondence between the Passover lamb of the Old Testament and the reality that the bones of Jesus were not broken, meaning for me that in the great sweep of redemptive history, that the, he is the greater Passover lamb. And the correspondence, of course, is the fact that the great redemption of Israel from Egypt occurred by the death of the Passover lamb, whose bones were not be broken. Now there is a greater redeemer in the presence of Christ, the greater Passover lamb, whose bones are not broken, and therefore there is remarkable prophetic fulfillment. We know that there is prophetic fulfillment because of John chapter 19 and verse 36. Where these things came to pass that the scriptures might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. And therefore, John is reminding us that this correspondence is a true correspondence. That Christ and his bones are unbroken because he is the great Passover lamb. And that is the who of the cross. Reminded to us that he is effecting redemption. He is about to accomplish the greatest redemption of all time. In the Old Testament, the Passover lamb and the blood of the Passover lamb sealed Israel in its redemption from Egypt, and the angel of death passes over the doorpost marked by the blood of the Passover lamb. Now Christ is the greater fulfillment, and the Old Testament is true. It prophesies of the work of Jesus on the cross. So that's the who of this great event. Let's look at the responses because that's a critical event. So really a response that encompasses each of you that are here this morning. Because in the final analysis, you're going to respond in one of two ways, and those two ways are before us. Let's begin with the first immediate response. It's not found in Matthew. It's found in the Gospel of John. But again, it's respecting the death of Christ upon the cross. The first, again, immediate response is a very unlikely one, a Roman soldier. The body of Jesus, on the one hand, is spared humiliation in the breaking of his bones, that in fulfillment of Scripture. But on the other hand, one of the soldiers has to make sure, and he pierces Jesus' side with a spear. It's an act of incredible cruelty, 
and the display of the sheer violence of the cross. Uh, but John makes it an event of prophetic fulfillment. Uh, just as uh, the bones of Jesus were not broken in fulfillment of Scripture, so his side is pierced in fulfillment of Scripture. The Old Testament uh, context of uh, this great event, Zechariah chapter 12. But let's look at John 19, 37. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Difficulty of that text is, uh, to whom does it refer? Let's turn to the Old Testament citation, prophecy of Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, and try to work our way through understanding who is the immediate fulfillment of this event of piercing the side of Jesus. So we go in the Old Testament, which is the source of the citation from John chapter 19 in the 37th verse. And there in Zechariah chapter 12, we have the Old Testament source for this prophetic fulfillment. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. It shall come to pass on that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David, on the, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn son. Well, the Old Testament context is uh, the coming of God to destroy the enemies of Israel and the end-time salvation of Israel. It's a prophetic event announced by the prophet Zechariah. Uh, John, the author of the book of the Revelation, has the greater fulfillment of this end-time event. In Revelation chapter 1, in the seventh verse. Zechariah is prophesying an event. John gives us its end-time fulfillment. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, even so, amen. John, of course, in the book of the Revelation, alters Zechariah with the addition of every eye and all the tribes of the earth. So what John is doing in chapter 19 of his gospel is giving us an immediate fulfillment in a repentant Roman soldier who is the beginning fulfillment of the great eschatological event announced in Zechariah chapter 12 that has its greater fulfillment in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, but it starts being fulfilled at the cross with a Roman centurion. In other words, the end-time gathering of a new Israel and its salvation has begun in this Roman centurion. The irony is that it is a Gentile and one of the executioners who is the first fruits of Zechariah's fulfillment. 
And John declares it to be so in his gospel, the 19th chapter, the 37th verse. He pierces Jesus' side and then looks upon him and in a moment gathers an understanding of what he has done and he repents in mourning and comes to the knowledge of the Savior. Remarkable fulfillment. Zechariah chapter 12, its end time expression is not fulfilled until the second coming of Christ, but it has a beginning fulfillment in a most unlikely of all persons in one of the executioners. The cross makes a believer a very unlikely one, but that is the grace of God, is it not? That even one of the men who was used to kill the Savior now comes to the faith, pierces his side, and then repents in mourning and comes to the knowledge of the Son of God. And that's the nature of the grace of God. Everybody in this room who knows Jesus Christ as a personal Savior comes many different ways, different venues, different challenges, different verses and texts, different modes and manners of fulfillment, but they come in repentance and mourn over their sin being imputed to Jesus Christ, and they rejoice in the knowledge of the righteousness of Christ being imputed to them. Again, the irony is remarkable because uh, the Roman centurion was a Gentile. But that is the point of John saying, all the tribes of the earth will look upon him whom they have pierced. Every eye, and now it has a breaking fulfillment out in one of the executioners of the grace of God. So prophecy, again, is being fulfilled. And John makes it so, John chapter 19, verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced, a Roman soldier, one of the executioners, is swept into the kingdom of God as he recognizes what he has done. That in every sense, you and I come to reckon the gravity of our sin, that the wrath and the judgment of that falls upon Christ upon the cross is the hope of our salvation, and we forsake everything else but him. It's one of the immediate responses of the cross and the majesty of the grace of God. We might say, no, it can't be a Roman centurion. It can't be one of the executioners. But it is. And John has it so in his gospel, the 19th chapter. You know, we, we need sometimes to rethink uh, those whom God saves. Who does he save? He saves sinners who reckon the gravity of their sin. You know, like the great prophet Jonah. Oh, God, don't save the Assyrians. They're mean and ugly, and they're Gentiles, and let them have the wrath of God. And what does God do? He causes a revival in Nineveh and saves Gentiles. Sometimes we might look on maybe some ethnic class and say, oh, God, they, they can't be saved. And what does God do? He saves even them in the power of his grace. What we really ought to do is stand in the mirror and look at ourselves and thank God for his grace and his power and what the cross means and what happened upon the cross. And so an executioner, one of the most unlikely persons of all time, comes to the knowledge of Christ as the only redeemer of the people of God. And he is numbered among new Israel and the beginning fulfillment of this great eschatological event. 
cruel and indifferent soldier is made soft by the cross. But the high drama doesn't stop here. Going back to Matthew, 27th chapter, two members of the Sanhedrin go public with their faith. Again, the Sanhedrin was the official council that went to Pilate and told Pilate to crucify Jesus, and now two of them come to the knowledge of Christ and go public with their faith. An unlikely two men, I might add. I mean, do you think in your own mind you might see that you were an unlikely convert to the grace of God? It's the way we should see ourselves as sinners, undeserving. Uh, the first uh, uh, convert who goes public with his faith is declared for us, uh, Matthew chapter 27. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Mark tells us in the 14th, pardon me, the 15th chapter, that he was a prominent member of the council for the Sanhedrin. Uh, both Mark and Luke state that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Uh, Luke adds something else that he did not agree with the Sanhedrin's uh, plan and their action. But Matthew, again, verse 57, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. It's a telling description. Uh, John, I think, is, uh, is even uh, better here. John chapter 19, the 38th verse. being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. I mean, he was, was a follower, if you will, but uh, he was afraid of the Jews, so he, so he hid his faith. One of the things we learned from going through the Gospels of Matthew is that you need to be very careful about uh, uh, trying to hide your faith. Uh, well, it happens, and maybe part of the process in your own life was you come to Jesus, yet you're afraid of what your friends might think of you, or maybe what a professor might think of you, so, so you kind of hide, and you're always dodging. What's well, Joseph of Arimathea? Because of the fear of man. He hid himself. In terms of application, it's a good reminder to us, be very careful of the fear of man because we need to fear God greater than man. And being a follower of Jesus means going public with your faith. And now because of the cross, that happens. At some point, you have to let your fear go. I understand in the great drama of redemption, sometimes that's a very difficult thing to do. Oh, what will my friends think of me? Oh, maybe my best friend will walk away from me. I don't know. I just know that those things occur. In some manner or form, Joseph of Arimathea was having similar thoughts. He was terrified at what the Sanhedrin would do to him. But he lets it go, and that process is engaged here. 
Mark says, very interestingly, that he gathered up courage <laughs> and goes to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. Again, if you want to look at the text, uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 43, but it is, he gathered up courage and he goes public. I mean, I'll simply confess to you, I've, I've been there. Maybe you're there now. I just simply don't know, but I'll confess to you I've been there. And Joseph gathers up courage and goes to ask for the body. You can imagine what that meant. What do you think the Sanhedrin did to him once he vowed to do this great benevolent act? but he gathers up courage in light of the cross. And that's one of the things, if you properly understand the cross and what happens there, at some point you're going to have courage and go public with your faith. That's exactly what is engaged in the process of the life of this man that you and I know as Joseph of Arimathea. It takes courage to be a disciple of Jesus. I understand in the process of time doesn't necessarily happen overnight, but eventually it will be so, because that is the life of a true follower of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who died upon the cross for the sins of sinners. And Joseph screws up his courage and goes to Pilate. He crosses the line. He dares to be bold and act upon his convictions. I mean, Robe could have cared less for the body of Christ. As far as they were concerned, he could have rotted on the cross. But Joseph intervenes because he knows this is the body of a king, his king, and he goes to take care of the body of his king. Again, there are just times you have to break away from the fear of man. I understand sometimes there's great drama in that event but that's a true response to a proper understanding of the cross of Christ. The time is now, and Joseph does. It's a great illustration of this in Old Testament, the book of Esther. She finds her way into the throne. She wins a beauty contest by chance, right? No, God has appointed her to win because great salvific events need to occur. The life of the nation is in trouble. She knows because the life of the nation is at stake that if she is not summoned before the emperor and goes uninvited and it angers him, it will cost her her life. But she must go. You remember what she says? Of course you do. If I perish, I perish. She confesses that God had appointed her for such a time as this. Think about it. The courage of Joseph, the courage of Esther. If I perish, I perish. Think of it in this way. If I lose a friend, I lose a friend. point of discipleship and following the Savior. We come to the recognition that there are greater things in play than our safety, our popularity, 
our well-being. Esther takes a stand. So does Joseph. So must we. And Joseph goes to do what is right. He takes the body and wraps it in linen and places it in his own new tomb, hewn out of rock. Tomb belonged to him. It's in a garden, John tells us. Isn't it interesting that the fall occurs in a garden and now the answer to the fall is in a garden owned by Joseph of Arimathea. Great redemptive events occurring from the pages of Scripture. John 19.41 adds, where no man had ever been lame. It's the reality that Jesus was loyalty and he was to be buried as a king. And Joseph recognizes that fact and goes to care for the body of his king. There's a parallel to this in the triumphal entry. Uh, you remember the account? Jesus rides to the city on a colt that had what? Never been ridden. Because that's what kings did. And Jesus was king in the triumphal entry. He was king upon the cross. And he is to be buried as a king. And Joseph recognizes that. One of the sterling encounters of every genuine faith is the encounter that Jesus is no ordinary prophet. He's the king of the created order. And he's to be regarded and treated as such. I mean, sometimes we fail in our, our culture because we live in a republic, we live in a democratic republic, and we think that, uh, well, Jesus needs our votes. He needs nothing. If he needed anything, he wouldn't be God. This is no ordinary man descended upon a cross. This is the king of all of salvation. And Joseph comes to that reality. But I will tell you that part and parcel of any true disciple, any true follower of Jesus, comes to the stark reality. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a great philosopher. He's not just the founder of the Christian faith. He is king, the eternal king, and is to be treated and regarded as such. This is, uh, you know, by the way, uh, another remarkable fact of prophetic fulfillment. Isaiah chapter 53, in the ninth verse, his grave was assigned to be with wicked men. That was so and with a rich man in his death, and now that is so. I don't know whether Joseph of Arimathea knew that text, but be, being a member of the Sanhedrin, I suspect he did. And one of the great realities of true discipleship is understanding the Scripture, and that all prophecy is fulfilled in Christ, and nothing will be left unfulfilled. Again, the importance of the word of God. My suspicion is, is that he knew Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 9, and he steps forward to offer his tomb from his garden for the death and proper care of his king. Joseph gets it, and he acts in light of who his king is. I mean, he sacrifices a lot, doesn't he? He was a rich man. He gives his tomb to his Savior. 
I would invite you in the process of your own discipleship is to be clear about who Christ is. The Son of God. The King of salvation. Understand that he is the great and only monarch that changes your way of thinking about him, and that's what we desperately need in our lives and in our culture. But Joseph has, has an accomplice, doesn't he? There's another member of the Sanhedrin that comes forward to care for the body of Christ. John chapter 19, verse 39. And Nicodemus came also. Remember the first encounter Nicodemus had with Jesus, uh, John chapter 3? He comes at night. Why do you think he came at night? He didn't want anybody to know he went. He didn't want to face the questions. So he kind of sneaks in the back door. I mean, we're kind of like that in times in our lives, aren't we? It's kind of, I don't know. I don't want my friends to know. I don't want my boss to know. I don't want my family to know. Kind of sneak around, become a secret disciple. Well, Nicodemus uh, now comes to unite with Joseph of Arimathea. You know, there's lots of places in our world today that if you come out for Christ, it's, it's, it's literally worth your life. Maybe we need to think in those terms. Be willing to give it all. Well, Joseph... Nicodemus are numbered among those who are willing to break with the Sanhedrin and to do what is right and to go public with their faith. Again, I remind you of a telling fact. To be a member of the Sanhedrin, that was you were at the pinnacle of academic success. They had achieved a lot in their culture, but sometimes you have to give it all up. Very difficult thing to do, but that is what followers of Christ are willing to do. It's hard to give up status. They give it away in a moment in light of what the cross means. And that's an essential element of true discipleship, understanding what the cross truly means. You know that from Mark. Let a man pick up his cross and follow me. You and I as well have to bear some measure of cost. And now we know here are two men giving up their status and everything else, as the case may be. He comes out for Jesus, and he provides for the burial of his king in his own way. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea came, gets the body of Jesus, John 19, 39, and Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds of weight. I don't know what it cost them. I just know that every disciple of Jesus bears some cost. That is the nature of the Christian faith. The pinnacle is the cross of Christ, but followers bear their own cross in light of what the cross does for us and did to them. Think about Joseph and Nicodemus. For, for a season, uh, they kind of stayed in the shadows. They hid. If you will, their faith was half-baked, but the cross completes the process. Beholding the cross, they commit publicly and honor the Lord. The significance of his death makes living for him an essential. Leon Morris has written, they failed him in life, but they honor him in death.
and their last confession is greater than their first. Be my prayer for all of us at Grace Bible Church that our last confessions would be greater than our first. That's the point of these two men who go public. The point of the text is shoving us to the right side, going public with our faith, willing to pay any cost, any price, in light of who our Savior is and what he has done. And their last confession is greater than their first. By the grace of God, let's let it be so in our own lives. This is what the cross does. It makes disciples. It makes followers who go public. It makes followers who give away their status, reject the Sanhedrin, their culture, and all that they had achieved, even dip into their own treasury to provide for their king. Well, there's another response before us, is there not? The contrast now is hardened men who we know from Romans chapter 1 suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They know the truth, but they simply suppress it. Verses 62 to 66, Matthew chapter 27. It's a response, hardened men. I mean, if you're not a Christian and uh, that uh, confession of faith goes terminal, uh, you will be so numbered uh, with these men described in Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 to 66. The temple mafia is concerned about the security of the grave. They are threatened by Jesus' promise of resurrection and, and presume that the disciples will come and steal his body away. I mean, I mean that's really insanity. Uh, because the disciples knew the promise. You think you're going to give your life and die for a lie? Jesus promises to raise from the dead, and you're going to come and steal the body to foster a lie and give your life for a lie, but that's the insanity of unbelief and men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There are a couple of echoes here that are very, very important in terms of prophetic fulfillment. I remind you that part of the reality of being strengthened as a disciple is the truth of the Scripture that's going to be fulfilled. Matthew 27, verse 62. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. That verbal form there in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is found in the Psalter, Psalm 2. It's a great psalm because Psalm 2 is indirectly messianic, meaning in my own mind that it has its immediate fulfillment in the life of the great messianic king David, but has a greater ultimate fulfillment than the true last messianic king in Christ, who is the ultimate fulfillment of the monarchy promised to David and his covenant with Israel that Christ is going to fulfill it in a profound, remarkable way. Psalm 2, verse 2, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
I've suggested that this is an echo fulfilled by the Sanhedrin, the chief priests who go to Pilate, and they gather together with Pilate uh, to work a lie. Greater fulfillment uh, has uh, its occurrence in that event. Again, the immediate reality is that David is facing an insurrection from Gentile kings who want to throw off his rule. It's a threat to the Messianic king. How does heaven respond? you recall, without looking at the text? God has decreed that David would rule forever. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. What happens when that seemingly is threatened? Do you know what heaven does? Well, look at Psalm 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, scoffs at them. You cannot stop the decrees of God. The Davidic covenant assured that David would rule perpetually until his death and then perpetually in the greater messianic king who will rule world without end in Jesus Christ. That Christ is king, the ultimate monarch of the earthly monarchy of the nation of Israel. And its brightest shining star in David is now totally eclipsed in Jesus Christ. And they come to take counsel against the anointed of the Lord? God says in Psalm 2, my decree will stand. My anointed will survive, and so it will be. I mean, this is men fighting against the inevitable, and that's eventually what will happen to all who oppose the Lord and his eternal purposes. Heaven laughs at them both. We need to recognize that in the reality as followers of Jesus. We are sometimes caught in the maelstrom of people rejecting the Savior, and we, we get afraid and timid and uh, biology class, evolution, what should I say? Oh, I'm just going to go along to get along. What's heaven doing? Laughing the folly of men who presume they can oppose the Lord's anointed, that Christ is the sovereign creator, the king, all of the world, world without end. Heaven laughs. We ought to learn the response of heaven from Scripture because that is the true response that governs our responses. There's another, I think, very distant echo here from uh, prophecy of Daniel, Daniel chapter 6. You and I know this as chapter Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, the followers of uh, the emperor uh, want to catch Daniel in a trap, and so they do, and uh, the trap means that Daniel has to be thrown into a tomb. Daniel 6 tells us a stone was rolled over the tomb. The tomb is filled with lions. I'm sure they were hungry. And so it's over for Daniel, isn't it? Christ upon the cross, that's over. Let's, let's go home. It just didn't work, does it? We heard all these prophecies, and, and now they, they didn't come to pass. Boo-hoo. We're sorry it didn't work. Let's just go back to becoming fishermen or whatever and realize that we wasted a couple years of our lives. And Now, what happens, Daniel, in the lion's den? Daniel chapter 6, and verse 16 and 17. The king gave orders, and Daniel was brought and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, himself will deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it 
with his own signet ring, with the signet ring of his nobles so that nothing might be changed in regard to Daniel. And what happens? Daniel lives, and the conspirators are thrown into the lion's den, and they are destroyed. It's a point of recognizing what happens of those who oppose the Lord. That's important for the disciple of Jesus. That all opposition will be vanquished. None will survive. The emperor says to Daniel, your God lives forever. He is the true king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Sometimes I think encounters like this in the scripture are important from the standpoint of understanding our opposition. We do that in business. We do it in sports. Uh, we want to know who our enemy is in the military. Who is your enemy? What happens to our enemies? They're going to be destroyed. You know how I know that? Matthew chapter 28 and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's two responses here. The first is commitment. A Roman centurion, one of the executioners, comes to faith. You might be saying to yourself, Pastor, if you only knew how bad I was. Well, how bad can it be if an executioner comes to Christ? God saves the worst. Because that's what he is in business to do, to save the worst. He doesn't save righteous men. He saves sinners. If you're not a savior, if you're not a Christian, that's the nature of salvation. He saves sinners. An executioner believes. The other response is to disciples who are trying to hide. The cross teaches them that Christ is king and they go to care for his body. You and I need a fuller understanding that Christ is king. We are his servants. He's an everlasting monarch whose dominion will only cover the earth. The opposition, how does it work out for them? Again, Matthew 28, won't work out very well, I tell you. The point of the text is to remind us that the word of God is not to be denied. It is shoving men into two camps. Believers and disciples, they become one and the same. That's the point of Joseph and Nicodemus. For a while they are secret, but they go public. Uh, believers and disciples, to me, in the process of time, are something of synonymous to terms. You know, maybe the text is telling you it's time to go public. I've decided to follow Jesus, the hymn that tells us. No turning back. But Joseph and Nicodemus do. And they never have regretted it throughout eternity. What happens to the men who take counsel with Pilate to suppress the truth? It's not going to work out very well for them. We know that from Scripture. And the scripture is true. It's very important, I think, to understand who the opponents are in the kingdom of God. Not just understand who they are, but what will happen to them. Because the scripture is true, they will be destroyed. Every one of the magicians and the wise men and the sorcerers who tried to have Daniel killed while he was saved, they're thrown into the lion's den and were destroyed. 
take counsel, my friends, if you're not a Christian, because that is in a very microcosm a picture of the end of all who stand in the way of the cross and what it means. Your response, where does it fit in? Hiding around, slinking around in the shadows, learn from Joseph Nicodemus. Not a Christian feel that you're so evil that God could never save you. You have long since crossed the line. Well, a Roman executioner begins prophetic fulfillment, pierces the side of the Jesus, and then looks in mourning, and in a moment is swept into the kingdom of God because of the power of God and what the cross means. And then the opposition, oh, God save us all, dashed, broken forever. Somewhere, you and I have a place in this encounter. I trust it's with Joseph, Nicodemus, and the Roman executioner. And my friend, it will go well with your soul.